0: Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're glad to be back with you on this Tuesday as we bring two very special guests to you and we dive into the ism report which just came out yesterday for the manufacturing report on business with brad holcomb who will be with us in just a moment before we do that i'd like to say hello to my co-host lou weiss his company all metals and Forge group is the sponsor of manufacturing talk radio lou how are you today
2: i'm doing great this afternoon and you
1: Good, good. Uh, good. I understand we had some, uh, and now Lou sent out a, a very ex, uh, extensive newsletter called the Metals and Manufacturing Outlook. He's the publisher of it, and uh, he requested some input from readers of that. Lou, I, I guess you got some very interesting responses. We d-
2: we did. Well, we, we usually do, but these were specifically um, concerning, and in, especially in view of the uh, the report on business uh, that came out yesterday. I just wanted to uh, read these three, and I know they're one-ofs, but it, they're from different parts of the country, and they're all metal working or metal fabrication uh, uh, sectors, and it's near and dear to my heart in view of uh, All Metals and Forge Group. Uh, so that being said, I'd like to just read these three, and uh, I'm going to kind of just open end and throw it at uh, Brad once you introduce him. Um, we hear from Mike from Michigan, who states, our business has been down for years. Our main line of work was defense products. We manufacture steel parts for the Bradley, the Striker, and more. These details were manufactured by Americans using American steel and used to save American lives. Way to go, Mr. President. Cost of living goes up, government spending goes up, but the American worker gets screwed. Bring back jobs that put people to work, not robots that replace them. Um, Mike has uh, got some very good points and uh, sounding a little bitter about what's going on as we hear from other people around the country. Um uh, we have uh, another one from, uh, where is this? This is Dave from Michigan. We sell filler metals to the forging industry for rebuilding dyes. This segment of our business is down about 27% year year to date over last year. Quite a significant decrease. Along with this, we've been uh, in a decrease, we've seen a decrease in the price of raw materials such as nickel and moly. As raw material goes down, so goes the economy. I would ask that nickel has pretty much followed the economy, or at least our portion of the economy, for a long time. Uh, another not too happy person. Um, and our last uh, one says uh, this is from Joan from Hagerstown, Maryland. I agree with your outlook. Just as things seemed to be perking up a bit, April sales dropped and May sales dropped again. I'm not looking for any increase in new sales until July or later. May was particularly slow since the total of normal sales for the month actually included about 40% from export sources. There were none in May. Zippo. Um, Tim, I'll flip it back to you and let's get Brad in on this.
1: Yeah, it sounds uh, like what you and I had talked about, Lou. Oh gosh, starting back in November when we were talking about the port strike uh, we thought it would uh, cause a problem with the GDP along with weather issues Uh, we were correct Uh, the uh, port situation along with weather issues caused the GDP to come out originally at 0.2% I know the original prognostications were much rosier than that it's now gone to minus 0.7 on the revised so I don't know what second quarter is going to bring,
2: but what kind of a number do you expect, Lou? Well, from what I have heard and read over the last uh, couple of days since all these numbers are coming out, that they're now beginning to forecast a jump second half of the year at 4.6 increase. That's also with three of those six months in the summer. So I'm not exactly sure who's telling who what stories, but – It's going to have to be a hell of a June, July, and August uh, for that to uh, happen. Um, I'd be surprised if we see a 2% for the year, uh, the way things are going. But um, one of of our economist friends says it'll be this, this, and this, unless.
1: Yeah, I think the unless is here. I think so. Um, Let's let's jump into the ISM report. Uh, I'd like to uh, introduce Brad Holcomb, who's been on the show several times. He's the chair of the Institute of Supply Management's Manufacturing Business Survey Committee. And the report just came out yesterday, so it's kind of hot off the presses. Brad, how are you today?
3: I'm just great Uh, in Dallas, Texas. We've got some sunshine, and uh, it seems like the rainy weather is behind us, so all is good.
2: We had, 40, we had we had forty six degrees this morning in Mawa, New Jersey.
3: Oh boy. Good. Well let's dive into the uh, the new May Manufacturing Report. And uh just to lead into that with respect to the the few comments that you read from from your audience. You know, certainly there are, you know, pockets of of uh you know disruption and um, you know, other other kinds of problems, and, and we'll always see that. And nobody uh, has been jumping up and down about the first four or five months of, you know, 2015. Um, you know, we forecast in December a better start to the year, and I may have mentioned in times past that I did a thesis in college on forecasting which cured me forever for being a forecaster. So I'm not (laughs) going to go there, but I can tell you what last month uh, meant uh, in terms of manufacturing. So I'll, I'll say just sort of as a broad brush that this month to me is the best month in many, if not most respects, that we've had all year. And I'll try to give some highlights uh, as we go along here. Uh, first of all, the PMI for May rose 1.3 percentage points from April to 52.8, with 14 of our 18 industries reporting growth in May. And that's, that's pretty significant. Uh, you know, two industries that reported contraction in May are textile mills and computer and electronic products, and uh, a couple were standing pat. So it's, it's pretty broad-based in terms of growth, and I want to get into the components as well uh, in, in just a minute. Now, what what was leading the way in terms of you know the PMI increase you know, was new orders and employment, uh, although all five supporting indexes were above 50. So, again, that's a real positive thing, as I alluded to uh, a moment ago, uh, that this is, you know, among the best reports, if not the best report that we've had all year. So new orders is particularly interesting, up 2.3 percentage points uh, to 55.8. And then employment grew 3.4 percentage points to 51.7 with 14 of our 18 industries indicating an increase in employment and only one uh, a contraction in employment. So again, um, you know, pretty, pretty broad based. And let me back up to the new orders. I mentioned, uh, let's see, 11 industries reported growth in orders in May, and only one industry reported a decrease. That same pattern is true for production. 11 reporting growth, and only one industry a decrease in May, which happened to be uh, computer and electronic products. And as I've already mentioned, uh, employment 14 were up and only one down. So, you know, these... These uh, sub-indexes are pointing up and to the right, in the right direction, as all five are. And uh, I want to reflect also on the previous two months of the PMI. We started out the year at uh, something like, let's see, 53.5, then came down to 52.9. March in april were both at 51.5 so low points for the year and what i would now call a mini plateau um, but we were suffering from you know several things during the first part of the year and leading into march and april namely you know some disruptive weather around the country uh the west coast port strike you know the strong dollar etc but we're getting through at least some of that, if not much of that. And, again, I I regard March and April at 51.5 each as a mini plateau. And, you know, I was feeling like it could be definitely up from here, and here we are at 52.8. So, directionally, I think we've broken, uh, you know, above that plateau. It sounds like, it looks like it's... Um, You know, well balanced and and broadly based in terms of our 18 sectors, and so I really, really kind of like this report, uh, despite the fact that 52.8, in and of itself, is not necessarily something to write home about.
1: Well, I noticed in the report, and uh, um, I I still educate myself on this so I understand it. In prices, uh, the manufacturing at a glance chart which is in the first page of the report, I think, on the first page and a half, uh, shows for May that prices uh, uh, took a nine-point percentage change, and it says the direction is decreasing. Can you explain that?
3: Right, I can. Um, First, The first number to look at is the the first column on the left, 49.5. Any time prices, in terms of the index itself, is below 50 it means prices are decreasing now at 49.5 is just ever so slightly decreasing and we've been decreasing for seven consecutive months which is very very unusual for this time of year as we've talked many times it's the first you know three four five months of the year when suppliers come into their customer organizations and uh, at least attempt to negotiate price increases for the balance of the year. But untypically and largely because of the you know, drop in, in oil prices you know, late last year and continuing through you know, to the current time, you know, prices of raw materials are going down. Uh, one of your respondents talked about nickel. nickel, steel, aluminum. They're all impacted because it costs, you know, a lot of energy to produce those, and the price of oil would certainly impact those in the direction that your respondent mentioned. Um, so, again, still decreasing. Now, let's talk about the 9% increase uh, in, in the, in the uh, rate of decline, if you will. Okay. Uh, and so this is a meaningful jump uh plus nine percent. Anytime you see that you have to ask sort of what's going on. Well, buyers have been and we've talked about this as as well, buyers have sort of been dragging their feet buying, you know, supplies and, and raw materials thinking that prices would go down even further. But there's only so much, you know, runway in that in that type of theory. And what they're sensing is that you know, prices are going to start to rebound. Oil is starting to stabilize, if not go up a bit, and with that sort of comes everything else, you know, your, your metals, your resins, you know, other things that are oil and, and gas related. So this plus 9% is a reaction to that. The sort of time is up on decreases in prices, and it's time to jump back in and buy our raw materials you know, place our orders uh, that we've been, you know, holding out on at this point, uh, until this point. So that's what's going on there.
1: Okay. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that. Now, you have comments that come in from the companies that you survey every month. Uh, What are respondents saying about what they're feeling out in the economy, as maybe opposed to what Lou was reading from some of the, the companies that responded to Our newsletter that uh, uh, Lou sends out uh, for his All Metals and Forge Company.
3: Right. Um, First of all, I pick ten comments from you know several hundred comments that come in from our panel across eighteen different sectors, and I try my best to make them representative of the whole. And these ten comments uh, have you know, a a certain character to them. They reflect mostly a positive tone of steady to improving economy with the West Coast port issue uh, backlog and and flow of goods improving. Uh, And, you know, there are exceptions to that. Uh, There's there's one noted. There's continuing challenges in markets related to oil and gas industries, and that comes from the miscellaneous manufacturing sector, but aside from that, um, you know things are, are largely positive in tone. And, and the reason that that's important, it's more you know forward-looking than the data itself, which applies to strictly the month of, of May. But any time you get comments like the first one from Food, Beverage, and Tobacco, economy is showing signs of improvement. You know the next one. Automotive is still strong. However, there is a however there. However, steel prices have dropped due to overcapacity and the strong U.S. dollar. And I think I read a report uh, online uh, today about the auto industry, you know, having a, a particularly good month, maybe the strongest strongest month in in quite some time. And so, uh, again, largely positive. And, nevertheless, we're coming out of the doldrums, if you will, and there will be some lingering issues associated with that, at least you know, for certain companies within certain sectors.
2: Uh, Brad, I'd like to ask you uh, one question, something that I remember from years ago, and I don't know if it exists anymore or not. In the development of the uh, report on business, if i'm not mistaken the report actually goes from roughly the 15th of the month to the 15th of the month of which you then release it on the 1st of the month um is that is that still the case
3: actually it's 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 shifted uh due to process improvements to to later in the month so uh you know that that was uh the case in the past, but the timelines have been moved forward so that we mm-hmm. capture you know, largely the, the entire month as, as best we can, allowing a few days for you know, publications and, and such.
2: Sure. Yeah, I was just looking to see if there was, uh, in regards to, let's say, our numbers and uh, our yeah. newsletter information, is that two weeks perhaps a factor in the differential between what we're seeing and what you're seeing? Uh, so i guess that's well, not it, exactly the case
3: yeah i would say it's not exactly the case and, and also let's be sure to to note that you know the the three or so comments that that you mentioned you know are from individuals who are having having difficulties and that certainly exists out there mm-hmm. uh, and, you know right. more than more than we'd like but uh, All right. Once again, we have 350 panelists reporting broadly in terms of what's happening at that at that level. Understood. Thanks. Okay. All right. Now, I'd like to pour into the employment number a little bit uh, deeper and, and talk about that in terms of forward-looking as well. You know, last month we were at 48.3, a decline in employment, and you can see that production was. Was down one and a half uh, percentage points, and and that's a reflection of you know a lower lower labor headcount. But we've jumped up a healthy three point four percentage points to fifty one point seven, uh, and uh, again it's broadly based with fourteen of our eighteen industries reporting growth in employment. And only one uh, reporting a decrease, which was computer and electronic products. And what's what's important about that is not just the month per se, but our manufacturers would not and will not add to their ranks of employment unless they saw you know, good solid order books going out for several weeks, if not several months. And because they see things, you know, from that perspective and want to be sure to have the right level of employment as well as the right level of supplies, of course, uh, in order to fulfill customer requirements, both new orders and backlog of orders. So, so that's an up. important forward-looking forward and you know, leading indicator itself of the manufacturing sector, and generally speaking, bodes well for employment numbers coming from
1: the government later this week. Yeah, we'll be interested to see what those are. You bring up two interesting areas, both new orders and employment. I just read today where Ford Motor Company is cutting their summer vacation, their summer shutdown short to produce an additional 40,000 uh, SUVs and the larger model cars, trucks, because there's such high demand for them with the lower gas prices right now. So clearly, I've read there similar articles, yeah. Yeah, their new orders in employment look good, and, and you're right, it would have to stretch out a couple of months. Anything else in the report, Brad, that was particularly interesting, or was there anything surprising in this report?
3: Uh, you know, nothing nothing particularly surprising except, you know, pleasant, pleasant uh, news in terms of all five of the supporting indexes being above 50. Let's talk a little bit about uh, – some of the indexes that you know, we, we don't uh, fold directly into, but we carry along the side. And just quickly, the backlog of orders is up four percentage points to 53.5. You know, that shows you that production wasn't able to keep up with new orders and backlog. So that is good news to keep production rolling as we move forward. And then finally, a, a brief comment on imports and exports. You know, with the price of the dollar, you know, our exports is impacted. You know, let's say in a in a negative way because that represents finished goods going overseas. But at 50.0, I'm not unhappy with uh, with the level of uh, the the uh, index. exports ports. It's up one. 1- percentage point to 55, and that represents raw materials coming from overseas in which the price of the dollar is favorable in that respect uh, for us. And so, uh, again, all of these indexes, to me, uh, are pointing in the right direction, uh, indicating, you know, hopefully an inflection point, but certainly a good month coming off of a short-term plateau in the last couple of months with respect to the PMI.
1: Brent, I don't recall. I know last month we were with you out in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, at the 100th anniversary of the ISM conference, and I don't recall from your mid-year update of your forecast for 2015 what the forecast for the year was. Perhaps you recall that and can Correct. share with our audience what, what your forecast for 2015 was from, you know, uh, mid-year uh, forward.
3: Right. I'm glad, glad you mentioned that because, you know, it, it's this same panel of 350 people that, that produced this uh, forecast and update, and they forecast 3.5% increase in revenues for 2015. And certainly we haven't seen that to this point and yet they expect that for the entire year 2015, and that uh, certainly is is a positive tone. Uh, and and certainly this month's PMI is is very consistent with that, moving in the right direction. I think positioned to uh, to continue to move uh, up and and to the right, if you will. With a number of these headwinds behind us, and no new ones that I can see right now uh, coming at us,
1: and you do a couple of calculations, uh, kind of off the cuff, Brad, from your report. I think one is uh, is it new orders minus inventories, to give you an indicator. Yeah,
3: yeah new my mi- new orders minus inventories is is it about four Three and I like anything five and above, but anything above zero is is good um, <laughs> so you know we're we're at four four plus, and it's just a side indicator that's suggestive of the fact that you know new orders are that strong there's a there's a pull to replenish inventories. And that certainly happened this month at up 2% in raw materials inventories.
1: Okay. And the other thing that uh, you mentioned in, I think, both sometimes the monthly report, but certainly in the annual forecast, is uh, the computation you do with the Department of Labor to come up with an estimated gross domestic product. What does that look like for our listeners through the end of the year? Well,
3: let me speak to you know what's transpired uh, so far uh, you know the average pmi from january through may was 52.4 that corresponds to a 2.9% increase in real gdp and the month of may itself at 52.8 if it's annualized mm-hmm. corresponds to a 3% increase in real gdp and of course these are correlations that are are reflective of uh, an overtime study.
1: Okay, well, that's still pretty strong number. So. Um, Brad, I also understand that you just completed a book with our next guest, who is Dr. Adriana Sanford, who is our special ethics correspondent. So I'd like to welcome Adriana to the show. How are you today, Adriana?
4: Fine, thank you. Glad to be here.
1: Great, glad to have you on the show, and and uh, maybe you and Brad can share with our audience what the book is and, and what it's about. Brad, what was the title of it?
3: Uh, Ethics is the overriding title, and I'm going to let Adriana really talk about the book because uh, she was the inspiration for this and has done, you know, the, the lion's share of the work in, in preparing it. Uh, I was a contributing author along with a couple. So, Adriana, why don't you pick it up from there?
4: Sure, sure. The book's title is Business Ethics, Surviving Storms, Challenges, and Ethical Risks. And it provides a, an overview of some of the basic challenges that our multinationals and our executives and our in-house counsel are currently facing uh, with regards to money laundering, with regards to counterfeiting of products, data protection, cybersecurity, and money laundering, all these issues that sometimes our executives may miss or our employees may not be very familiar with. And the purpose of the book is to explain a little bit about each one of these areas and the importance and how it may relate to terrorist financing and provide our students, a, I guess, a foundation from where they can go if they happen to be in a company and not really sure what's going on around them.
1: Yeah, it certainly is a very challenging area, and I understand that uh, there are some real serious liabilities, and we are going to get into that with uh, Professor Sanford when we uh, come back from a commercial break. What I'd like to do is go to a commercial break and then uh, spend some time speaking with uh, Professor Sanford about uh, counterfeits in the supply chain. This is an interesting but kind of scary uh a facet of what's happening out there in manufacturing. And I'd like our listeners to hear it and to hear how it occurs and some of the things that they can do to snuff it out because it is not just scary, but the liabilities in it are, are, are beyond significant. So let's take a quick commercial break so that we can come back and spend some time with uh, Dr. Uh, Adriana Sanford and talk about counterfeits in the supply chain.
0: Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back.
5: How do you keep your business humming? Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings, simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason thomasnet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to thomasnet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania is a
2: leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit americancrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778.
0: All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at Steelforge.com or call... 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name's Tim Grady. I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss, Uh, Lou's with All Metals and Forge Group, the sponsor of Manufacturing Talk Radio. And we've just been speaking with Brad Holcomb, who is the chair of the Institute of Supply Management's Manufacturing Business Survey Committee, about the May uh, report on business for manufacturing, which is a rather positive report. Each month they roll up that number to come up with what the number is for the previous month, and they release it the first business day of the month uh, shortly after 10 a.m. So if you want to kind of put that on your calendar and take a look at it going forward, it's always an interesting discussion with Brad to find out what are the numbers behind the numbers and what do they mean. Uh, We're now talking with uh, Professor Adriana Sanford. She's a clinical associate professor in the Department of Management for Arizona State University's W.P. Carey School of Business, specializing in law, international management, leadership, and business ethics for managers. She also teaches at W.P. Carey's Supply Chain Management Department. She's ASU's Lincoln Professor of Global Corporate Compliance and Ethics to some 85,000 students, as well as staff, faculty, and the broader local and global community. Uh, She's uh, with the APB Speaker for the uh, American Program Bureau, and she is our Special Ethics Correspondent for Manufacturing Talk Radio. So, uh, Professor Sanford, let's talk a bit about Uh, counterfeits in the supply chain. There's some pretty scary stuff in here. And you've used a couple of examples such as purses and the purchase of counterfeit purses and where that money goes. Can you share that with our listeners?
4: Sure. Counterfeiting, product counterfeiting is a problem for all industries. And some of those are luxury items such as purses and watches and whatnot uh, the concern there is that it's not really a victimless crime, as many people believe it to be. The, the, the actual victims in cases like that are basically where is the money going and who is making the money. Many of these, ti- many of these cases, it's actually tied to terrorist financing, also, if you take a look it 's about five to seven percent of world trade uh, comes from counterfeit products, according to the international chamber of commerce and that 's about six billion dollars in international trade that 's just coming from from these uh, these problems these challenges. The challenges, however, are not only in the luxury items the challenges exist with regards to electrical issues with regards to pharmaceuticals so they affect our health. There are safety dangers as well.
1: And uh, certainly in aerospace as well, I mean, a counterfeit part, uh, are we talking about the risk of bringing down a plane because they've got a part in it that, that's not up to snuff?
4: Well, I- exactly. That's one of the major concerns is that each incident can potentially affect thousands of parts in a manufacturing company, and that's millions of dollars in revenue and lives. So this is an area that is of great concern for us here, for every industry. And if you've got a good product, there's going to be somebody who wants to copy it. Who, you know, there, there are different ways of counterfeiting, and depending on your industry, depending on your region, you're going to be targeted in different ways.
1: Professor Sanford, I understand that in some, and I was just reading up on this, 23% of the cases that they've uncovered the employees of the company knew that they were putting counterfeit parts into the supply chain. That's rather staggering.
4: That is a concern, and unfortunately that is, that is a fact. It is a very big concern because a lot of times employees are not trained and do not understand the consequences. They may be looking short-term, you know, at maybe making um, a deadline or budget constraints, and they don't realize that this may later on cause a recall and it can, you know, it can affect your whole company. Or it may be somebody in the company that decides to look the other way, maybe an executive, because that particular counterfeiter is also one of their biggest clients. So they're, they're short term. They're not looking at the, the overall picture. They're not really looking at how it's going to affect the brand or the company. They're more focused on meeting that bottom line.
2: Uh, professor, uh, we know that there's a lot of counterfeiting that goes on in all sectors. What, what's happening in the in the in the aspect of uh, catching the uh, wrongdoers and uh, prosecuting and so on? Is there much of an activity in that area?
4: There is, and there are certain countries that are more active than others. The Philippines has been very active, and the U.S. is very active. We have um, an IP czar in place, and that person is a, an enforcement, an IP enforcement coordinator. They help companies develop and implement strategies for IP enforcement. They shoulder a lot of the costs. Some countries, however, only look at counterfeit if it is local counterfeit. And if it is a foreign company's product, they don't do much. So really what we need to see is more international coordination. Um, Companies, multinationals, should be casting a wider net in order to train their employees and their subsidiaries, especially when they're located in foreign countries, and really reach out to other governments, to other countries for help
2: we've been reaching out to uh, mexico Um, we've uh, started sending down a lot of aerospace manufacturing there's altogether about 400 aerospace related companies now in mexico many of them moved from the u.s and many of them have been developed in mexico and i know mexico also has a uh, counterfeit problem uh, are, are you uh, versed at all in what's going on down there in the manufacturing sector?
4: Sure. What, what's going on, basically the U.S. government works very closely with Mexico because we have a treaty in place. And these are situations where it's actually easier uh, to seize product. The, the Obviously the brand owners have an interest in this, the governments have an interest, and the professional associations. And if everybody works together, it's easier to tackle this global problem. This, it's a global network. Um, the counterfeiting can, can happen in, in the manufacturing process, in the distribution process, you know, anywhere along the line. So if you've got the governments involved and they're working together and there's a treaty like there is with Mexico, it makes it a lot easier to seize the product. The problem is this is a very hot issue for terrorists, for organized crime, because unlike drug trafficking and human trafficking, um, it's usually the same channels, but they avoid detection, they avoid arrests, and usually it's not in the limelight, it's not in the spotlight. So this is now one of the ways in which they are working, because obviously it's a lot easier Uh, And that is why it is a concern for the Mexican government and for the U.S. government, as well as for global security. We want to assure ourselves that we're protected, and our manufacturers, our executives, and our companies are protected.
1: Uh, Professor, I want to kind of circle back to a comment you made, that sometimes the provider of the counterfeit part is one of the larger Customers or suppliers for the company? I'd read where vendors in 20% of the cases are well aware that the parts that they're providing are counterfeits. How does it work when it's one of the larger, did you say customers or vendors?
4: Right. Well, what can happen... in, in some cases, an executive may be working with a client, maybe a vendor. It can be anybody, and they make the wrong decision. They may decide to continue. Or, uh, well, let's back up. Let's talk about counterfeit product. When we're talking about counterfeit product, we may be talking about a knockoff. Maybe somebody is copying your, you know, your watch or your purse. That's a knockoff, and usually you can tell a knockoff. They're not well made. So in cases like that, a company may have the market, the foreign market, and may say, you know, that knockoff is so different from my own product that it's not going to bother me. The problem in that particular case, if you're dealing with a knockoff, is that the person making that knockoff is going to get better and better and better. All of a sudden, the product looks just like yours, but may not function as well as yours. So now people are associating that knockoff that looks identical to yours and thinking that you have a poor product but that counterfeiter is going to continue to make a good product and all of a sudden that product is identical to yours and then there may be some mixing and in the gray market and the product is being sold next to your product on the same shelf well once that counterfeiter gets really good do you think he's going to keep your name your your, your trademark, your, your information, no. He's going to make up his own name, and now there's a brand-new product which is identified, and consumers say, wow, this is a good product, and you know what? Don't buy this other one because sometimes you get faulty uh, production, which in reality was never faulty production. It was a counterfeit, and nobody and it was allowed to fester and grow. Okay, so that's a knockoff. The other issue is when you have third shifts. Sometimes a company, you will ask someone else to provide you the product, and you give them a blueprint, and they do a great job, and maybe you're doing this in another country because it's cheaper to produce. But what happens is after production is over, there's what's called another shift, a third shift, after hours, and somebody in that company starts producing the product and selling it. That's another way you get counterfeit products. There again, the executive you know, somebody who's not ethical within the company may decide it's okay because the cost of producing the product is cheaper and they don't really pay attention to where that third shift is going, and that may be going towards terrorist financing. And lastly, the third way that you may see counterfeit product is sometimes products are not perfect or there are safety concerns. So those products, because not every product you manufacture is perfect, you do have defective products, those are supposed to be thrown away luxury companies take particular close attention to this because they want to make sure that that zipper is perfect and you know in line with their brand. So what may happen sometimes is that product is, is taken and stolen and sold in the gray market, sold in other places. And that's when you end up with a purse that looks almost identical to the purse that you want. Again, the concern is who's making the money, who's taking that product. And some executives will look the other way because they don't either want to disturb the market, they may be a client of theirs that they know is doing a third shift, or it may be that they just have the market and they don't want to be bothered with this. A lot of times not enough money is allocated to IP, and that's a problem. We need to see more resources or IP enforcement in companies, and we need to make consumers aware of what's really going on and our concern with terrorist financing.
1: Uh, Professor Sanford, I know the knee-jerk reaction may be that all of this counterfeiting must be coming out of China, but is that really the case?
4: No, that's another uh, myth, I guess it's out there, that people assume if it's made in China or if you're working with China, this is where you're going to have a problem, when in actuality, the problem of counterfeit is not only in China. It occurs in other pockets, in other regions, and in other countries. So we really need to work closely with these governments and you know, if they don't have strong IP legislation or they're not enforcing their legislation, we need to work with our own government or a foreign government that may be actually already working on this issue to ensure that we have protection because the manufacturing of counterfeit is occurring in other regions, other pockets, other pockets of Latin America. The tri border region is a very dangerous region in Latin America and there's a lot of counterfeiting that crosses the borders. And that, in many cases, has been tied also to terrorist financing. And it's been tied to terrorism in the embassy, the bombing in Argentina, but it's also tied to global security issues.
1: Now, as we you know, look around the world and say, gee, it's coming from Latin America, it's coming from South America, it's coming from China, is any of it coming from the United States itself?
4: I don't know. I can't answer that because I'm not in that um, I'm not in that. It depends on the industry, and mm-hmm. it depends on there's so much. It's a very complex issue. You really, if you're interested in knowing this and you are a company that's dealing with this or having an issue, you need to really vet your investigators, vet your employees, and especially make sure you know, that you have a quality control unit in place. Uh, with regards to the U.S., I think we have a pretty good handle of it. I feel very comfortable uh, with our manufacturing, you know, that takes place here in this country. But in any in any situation, you always have to be aware and really um, have the right network, the compliance program in place.
1: So now we know we've got a problem. How are supply chain leaders well positioned to implement controls to reduce? and eventually eliminate counterfeit products from the supply chain and protect their companies?
4: Well, the supply chain is on the front line. They're able to see what's happening. They're really the ones that can watch, because a lot of times it will happen there. It will happen in other countries, and right now there's a lot of new legislation coming out uh, in the U.S. and in the U.K. with regards to human right-related risks. And within that, it's human right-related risks and transparency in the supply chain. When we're talking about counterfeiting and the production of counterfeit product, we're talking many times about poor working conditions. We're talking often about child labor. So there's going to be legislation requiring transparency in the supply chain to make sure that we have no human right-related risks. And with that, there's going to be a lot more focus um, on – what's going on, and we're going to find counterfeit, counterfeit products. Now, there are companies like Hewlett-Packard that are out there that are really on the forefront of tackling this issue. Hewlett-Packard's packaging has changed. It's a very complex and, and, uh, in, 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 in the way they make it, and it's hard to copy. There are other techniques that companies are using to try to protect themselves. Uh, I can give you examples. There's, synth- there's synthetic DNA butterfly wing-inspired printing techniques, invisible woven patterns. Companies are doing different different things to protect their products. They're not just standing by and letting this happen. Um, the problem with this is sometimes the cost, and it's also complex in implementing. One of the so, best ones out well, I was going to give you an example of one of the best sure ones out that. there right now um, – there's, there was a team of Koreans in the Korean Advanced Institute for Science and Technology that put together what are called jumble nanowires, and this is like a unique fingerprint, and it's item specific. That seems to be working, but the one I like the most is an encryption. It's like an ID that goes on a 2D code or a barcode, and this empowers and allows consumers to take some control and make sure that their product is authentic. It is what we're we're going to be able to see, and we're not seeing it right now here, but I know that HP is using something similar to this in Africa with regards to pharmaceuticals to help uh, with regards to drug-resistant diseases. But here in the U.S., there's a company called Six Degree Counterfeiting, and what they're doing is... It's, it's, I think it's called six degree counterfeiting prevention. But what, what this will allow is a consumer, a college student, a mom, to go into a store and scan with their phone, their iPhone or their Android, the product in order to see whether that product is, in fact, an authentic product. This is great for companies, and this is great for the government because if a product has been diverted, immediately that will notify the company, and if the company is tied to the government, you can stop, the, you can actually stop this this product from being sold.
1: Now, I noticed in, in uh, talking with you on this subject and a couple of others, professor, that there are some liabilities for company executives when they discover issues of this nature. What kind of liabilities are we talking about?
4: Well, the concern that we have is any decisions that a company takes, any multinational takes, needs to be considered from a global perspective. It needs to be looked at with a global lens because depending on the countries you're working with, some of their legislation has extraterritorial effects. And sometimes the multi-jurisdictional requirements and the different approaches that they're taking to a problem, either it be counterfeiting or it be a security issue or data protection or whatnot, money laundering, the approaches may be different and the new and diverse legislation on how to approach that issue of corruption uh, may conflict uh, the legislation when it conflicts with each other causes a major ethical dilemma because that executive won't know how to act or that multinational may be caught in the middle
1: and i know that 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 you uh, you gave us a, an example which i thought was a great one which i'd like you to repeat uh, and you don't have to mention the name of the company obviously but uh, a situation where one government, and I think it was the U.S. government, is demanding one thing, but they're uh, involved with another government, and there are different body of laws that won't allow them to do that thing, and they get caught in a real catch twenty two. Can you share that?
4: Sure, that's happening right now, and our multinationals are very concerned because both the U.S. And, and the other the region is the EU in that particular case, but it can also happen with Malaysia and the Philippines and the U.S. Um, or pockets of Latin America. But basically what happens is in some of these countries, there's a duty to report. And there's, just like in the U.S., there's a duty. The U.S. government may be interested in a certain organized, uh, may be working on an organized criminal investigation and may immediately want to seize evidence. Well, the EU's laws, they have a basic fundamental right of privacy that they believe in. And there are certain restrictions and there are certain steps you have to take in order to give information to another country. If the company is a U.S. multinational, there are certain requirements and certain things that they must do. U.S. companies and U.S. executives must always comply with U.S. law. You don't do in Rome as the Romans do. You always do as an American what you have to do for your country, but then you also must comply with the laws of the other country. So an example is the we're seeing it right now with data protection reform, with the data protection, the EU data protection directive that's in place, where companies are being forced to give information uh, to the U.S. government for investigations, and at the same time, they're being told by the EU data protection directive that they cannot, that they must first take certain steps with the EU. There is a predicament. Another one is with the Gatekeepers Initiative. The EU developed the Gatekeepers Initiative in the same way that they had the Know Your Customer for financial institutions. Well, we adopted the Know Your Customer. And when you enter a bank, a teller is going to ask you a whole bunch of questions if you're taking out a lot of money or you're putting in a lot of money. We in the United States have not adopted the Gatekeepers Initiative. This has created a, a challenge because even though it's not adopted here, it's been adopted or guidelines or pieces of it have been adopted by the EU and by other regions of the world, and that requires our accountants and our lawyers to disclose money laundering, to disclose anything that they suspect, and especially if they know about corruption and it's tied to terrorist financing, Um, and that puts people in a predicament, because if they disclose it, they may get in trouble, especially if it's a lawyer and they are dealing with a bar the privacy attorney-client priv- uh, privilege actually conflicts in some occasions with the laws in the other countries, and it puts these people in a predicament because we are not, our governments are not right now collaborating on these issues, and they're not looking at how it affects those executives and those uh, those lawyers.
1: And you don't just have to be a large multinational corporation to have these kind of challenges. Certainly, any manufacturer in the U.S of any size who is purchasing or sourcing product that comes from overseas could have an issue they are not aware of. Uh, they that, could have a, is, that, is that correct?
4: That is correct. And it's going to be even broader because the new data protection regulation the new, that is coming out, and I believe it's coming out next year, is broader. You don't have to have a subsidiary. You don't have to have a branch. And you don't have to have an office. If you are monitoring EU citizens or if you are actually on the Internet and have EU citizens purchasing your product, you are under their new regulation. And the same is true for a lot of these other issues uh, with regards to briberies, with regards to, to money laundering in some of these countries. It will touch you, and you will have your very own money laundering offense, uh, particularly in, in like Malaysia and the Philippines, if you don't disclose it.
1: Well, that's pretty scary. I know the, the Department of Justice takes a pretty dim view of things like kickbacks and money laundering. <laughs> it's pretty aggressive at uh, prosecuting those cases.
4: They're very aggressive, and that's great, Um, but the problem is when it comes to executives and it comes to disclosure, the requirements are not in line between the countries, and what you're permitted or need to do in some countries can create criminal liability if you don't, uh, especially for executives and for their in-house counsel, and the concern is how do they react, what should they do? my the way i look at this is you need to have moral courage and you really need to follow your relief system and if you see that there's terrorist financing if you see that there's money laundering you know we've got our our people we've got our our law enforcement and our military out there risking their lives and in my opinion you know our war on terrorism is only as strong as our weakest link and we can't let that weak link be our business link So we have to stand up if we see this. And our countries need to work together so that we can have a global security front.
1: Uh, Lou, before we sign off uh, with uh, Professor
2: Sanford, is there anything else that you would like to explore with her on this topic? Well, I I think that her last comments, uh, Professor, are uh, quite powerful. And, you know, we are talking about global issues. It's, It's no longer... Our country, our, our little country, that uh, is running running the roost. Uh, we're all involved together, and uh, I think it was a very good point that you were bringing out that this is global, and that perhaps what needs to be done is that these laws and regulations from one country to another have to be universalized, if there's such a word, and uh, working together to uh, end this uh, this plague of uh, bad parts risking of life, and uh, supporting uh, terrorism. So on that that note, uh, I'd like to thank you uh, for being on our show, and we're going to see you on a regular basis. Um, I do want to mention to our listeners that uh, two points. One is that uh, you can listen to this entire show, if you missed the beginning of it, at mfgtalkradio.com. And also uh, you will see when you go to uh, this particular show that we do have a listener survey that we'd really like you to participate in, and we're giving you one of our fancy manufacturing talk radio mugs uh, for filling out the survey, so we, we would like you to take advantage of that. and thirdly, uh, I would like to point out that uh, if any of our listeners have uh, comments, we welcome your comments and we'll respond to all of them. Send your comments to comments at mfgtalkradio.com and I guess while I'm on a roll, I may as well speak about uh, next week's show. We're going to have our fifth in a series, five of five, Aerospace on the West Coast. So surely tune in to that. And, uh, Tim, I think you got more than you bargained for here, so I'm going to flip it back to you.
1: <laughs> okay. I want to thank Brad Holcomb for being on the show. Brad is always a terrific contributor to give in-depth information on this uh, uh, report on business for manufacturing. There's so much more that behind the number when you hear 52.8 for May, which is usually the sound bite on the nightly news. There's so much more information there in the report. We encourage you to go to the Institute for Supply Management.org and drill down in their uh, section for the ISM report on business. Take a look at that. I want to thank uh, Dr. Sanford for joining us again on the show. She is our kind of another recurring guest, uh, our special ethics correspondent. Uh, Dr. Sanford, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me.
1: And we look forward to hearing from both of those guests in the future shows. And that wraps us up today for Manufacturing Talk Radio. If you would like to follow us uh, and, uh, on tw- something like Twitter, it's at Uh Go to our website, mfgtalkradio.com, to listen to any of our previous shows. Uh, also, this show will be posted there very shortly. And we thank you for listening to the Manufacturing Talk Radio today, the voice of manufacturing globally.
0: Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com.
2: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.